This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. Good morning. Happy Sunday after Easter. Great, great to see you this morning. And for those of you who are, uh, your first time was here last week, well, welcome back. We are delighted that you're here and uh, uh, willing to take a spiritual journey with us. And we are embarking on a brand new series of sermons that uh, is going to call for you to use a little bit of the imagination that God has given you, guided by His Word. And uh, it's going to be a fun and interesting journey over the next five weeks. So I welcome you to that. My name is Ron. Uh, For those of you that I haven't met, uh, I would love to meet you before you get out of here this morning. Uh, But welcome to New Life and uh, welcome to a church that uh, just loves to connect with God and be our desire to get you connected with God as much as we possibly can. A safe place for you to explore uh, not only God's existence, but uh, who He is and what implications that might have on your daily life and my daily life. And uh, so I just want to say welcome to the church. Now, on the inside of your program, you'll find uh, sermon notes. For those of you who come here all the time, you know that uh, it's usually a half a page, and today it's a folded page. So you know what that means? Either I'm going to speak a really long time, or we're going to have to do it really quickly. So we're going to do it really quickly. We're going to go through a lot of very interesting material. And uh, so I'm beginning a series of sermons called Destination Eternity. And I'm going to start out with a confession. As unlikely as it sounds, I've been a pastor for some 36 or 37 years and knew relatively little about heaven. And um, and that was really my loss, and actually the loss of the people that I speak to, in, including some of you who have been in this church for years. And um, in uh, on February the 4th, I began a month-long sabbatical And as I was leaving for sabbatical, one of the ladies in the church came up and gave me a book and said, if God would so direct you, um, I just want to give you this book and maybe he'll have you read it while you're on sabbatical. And I picked up the book and I started to read it and I leaned over to my wife about 20 pages into it and I said to her, this book is going to change my life. And it wasn't so much the book, because the author is uh, better than average, but certainly not an outstanding author, but it was the subject matter that riveted me to that book. And I want to recommend that book to you, um, because it's a very Bible-based book. You can get it under resources, etc. table. I'll tell you another little story about the book before I tell you what the book is. I was with another pastor in town a week and a half ago, and he said... um, he said, hey, what are you preaching on right now? And I said, well, you know, I'm getting ready to start a series of sermons on heaven and eternity. And I said, I am so jazzed about this. I said, I'm just so excited. And he said, you must have read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. I said, how'd you know? He said, I just picked it up and started to read it. He said, all of my life, I've never been excited about going to heaven. Now I am. I have to confess that's me. I want, I want to read to you some passages of Scripture as, as we get started in this. So it's Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. But what I'm really excited about isn't what Randy said. It's a, what Randy pointed out that God was saying. Everybody understand what that means? So let's take a look. <clears throat> 
First question is, why are so few Christians really excited about going to heaven? I'm always reminded of the pastor who got up, was all jazzed about heaven, and, and he said, how many of you really want to go to heaven? Every hand in the place went up. He said, how many of you want to go today? They all went down. <laughs> well, there's something about that that just doesn't, there's something about that that you look at it and go, that is the way it's supposed to be. And uh, it, it was always that way with me. And before I read you the passage, I want to tell you about my younger brother. He's a, he and his wife and, and two of his children uh, just two days ago got back from a trip to Italy. And um, it was a fabulous trip. They were all jazzed and excited about it. But you know, the interesting thing was, he started talking to me about this trip three months before they ever left. And he goes, Ron, I'm so excited. We're going to go to Italy. And he said, you know, I've been researching. I've been on the internet. I've been looking up places where we can go. I've been looking up museums that we can visit. I've, I've, I've looked up their museums that have these, these historical, um, paintings and, and sculptures and all this kind of stuff. And he said, I've got it all mapped out and we're going to go here and we're going to go there. And, and so we got some airlines tickets and we've made reservations in this hotel and that hotel. This is what we're going to do. And, and, and then he said, you know, I've decided I'm going to learn Italian. So he ordered a, a self-paced course in Italian and started teaching himself Italian. And, and then he discovered that a neighbor a block and a half away had an Italian foreign exchange student staying with him. So then he started making arrangements every week to go spend time with that foreign exchange student so he could be taught conversationally so they could go off the, off the beaten path back in places where no one spoke English and he could still get along. And, and now, having done all of that preparation, their trip to Italy was just fabulous. Now compare that trip with somebody who picks up the phone, calls a travel agent, and said, could you get me a couple of tickets to Italy? And they show up in Rome and, and they look at each other and say, so what do you want to do here? I don't know, we're here. Do you understand that when we actually make preparations and start anticipating and thinking about and dreaming about, it increases our experience? Well, that begs a very interesting question. If we're going to live on planet Earth, maybe 70 to 80 years max, and we're going to live in heaven in etern for eternity, I wonder how come we spend so much time thinking about this place and so little time thinking about that place? That was an interesting thought for me. Well, I'm going to take you through four passages of Scripture that kind of gave me some insight into why I was that way. The first one was this. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. I want you to circle or underline that phrase, dying is even better, and I want you to ask yourself an honest question. How many of you feel like that's actually the case, and you get more excited about dying than living? Yeah. You know, it's only been a few times in my life when I was really excited about dying, and that's when life wasn't going that well for me right then. <laughs> and I can remember praying on a few occasions, Lord, if you want to come today, that'd be okay with me. But the honest truth was, I wasn't so excited about being in heaven as I was just getting out of this place. Yeah. Now Paul says, for me to live means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful things, more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I am torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. 
But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. I confess, as a pastor, I've, I've read the Bible through 20 plus times, cover to cover. And I confess, as I read that passage of Scripture, I used to say, God, someday make me like Paul, the Apostle, Billy Graham, and Mother Teresa, who could probably read that and mean it. Never met a Christian that I thought could actually read that and actually lived every day feeling like, man, it would be great to go to heaven today. In fact, I'm kind of torn between the two. Well, that pointed me to another passage of Scripture which also had a difficult time relating to. Since you have been raised with Christ, it's a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. I want you to circle the words, set your sights, put a little line out to the margin, and I want you to write the word daydream. That's literally what he's talking about. Daydream about the realities of heaven. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the, the things of heaven and not the things of earth. I have another confession to make to you. Just recently, I, my, one of my hobbies is woodworking, so I have, I have a wood shop. Just recently, my table saw grew up. I have a contractor saw, and for a long time I have daydreamed about having a real cabinet maker's fence and rails on my Delta contractor saw. Now, I had daydreamed enough that I knew there was a Beesmeyer fence and there was an AccuSquare fence and there was a Delta Unisaw fence and there was an HTC fence and there was a Powermatic fence and I had looked them all up on the Internet and I had kind of drooled on the keyboard and wiped it off and, and you know, it's a $300 deal, right? So that's a big decision for me. Am I going to put this $300 piece of equipment on my fence? But I mean, on my saw, but the great thing is it's always perfectly square to the blade and it's always perfectly in line with the table and it's pretty easy to cut wood to, to the accuracy of 128th of an inch. It's very easy to do that. And so you can make some just really fine precision work and, and, and I walked into a store and I found one for 15 bucks, brand new. So my table saw grew up. But you know the sad part is I spent more time daydreaming about a table saw over the last year and a half than I probably have 44 years of being a Christian daydreamed about heaven. You know what? I daydreamed about a $15 purchase. Something's not quite right about that. You understand? But now what does God say? Set your sights. Daydream. Yeah. So, well, that begged a question for me. You know, God keeps telling me heaven is this wonderful experience. Why is it that I find it so easy to daydream about things on this earth and so difficult or, or unnatural maybe to daydream about things that are in heaven? And then I came across this verse and was like, oh, the light went on. And here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And that was it. That was my out. Because heaven is this surreal place that I've never been to and don't really understand. I just, you know, honest to goodness, I trust God that it's going to be good. And besides that, when you consider the alternative, it looks really good. 
And I just kind of left it in that category because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And so I just kind of left it out there in the surreal part of my mind. But somehow I missed the whole last part of that verse. Take a look at the last part of the verse. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. He was never God's intent that heaven would be this sort of surreal thing that we could never wrap our minds around. What that meant was that the Spirit of God was trying to reveal to me what heaven was like. I just wasn't listening and paying attention and tuned in because He has revealed it to us by His Spirit. And I suspect that I'm not the only Christian. In fact, um, I, as I was visiting with this other pastor, he said, you know, Golly, I had the same experience. He said, I'm having it as I read. So he said, I went back and I got out all of my notes from going to seminary. And I thought, did I just miss all this? And I said this to Monica the other day. I said, I've read the Bible through 20 plus times from cover to cover. How can I miss all this stuff? And uh, this pastor was lamenting the same thing. He got out his seminary notes and his seminary notes said pretty much what mine did. And that is, you know, God really hasn't said a whole lot about heaven just Trust Him, it's good. And there you have it. That's the theology of heaven. Well, we're going to expand on that a little bit using God's Word as a guide and the wonderful imagination and the ability to picture uh, that He's given to us. And for the next five weeks, we're going to kind of take a, an imaginary journey through eternity. And it will be a fun and enriching experience. Now, what I wasn't prepared for, however was how much meaning every day of this life now makes when I understand what eternity is. And you know, I, was, I came across a little piece from C.S. Lewis. And those of you who have hung around Christianity for a while will recognize the name C.S. Lewis. In fact, just a few years ago, Hollywood made a movie called Shadowlands, which was the life of C.S. Lewis, one of the finest, most articulate minds of the 20th century. Here's what C.S. Lewis noticed. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And then just in case you missed that point, Here's, here's kind of how he puts it in a nutshell. If you aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you will get neither. Wow, that was pretty powerful. So let's, let's take a look. Now, sometimes if we want to understand something, we have to see it in its context. And a lot of times, if we want to understand a particular thing, we have to, the more we understand of its history or how it got to this place, the more we understand about how it is today and actually where, where it might be going. And so that's the way it is. If we don't understand God's plan in eternity from start to, to, to eternity, then we won't understand how earth fits into it, and we certainly won't understand the place that heaven fits. So that's why this particular sermon is called In the Beginning, because we are going to go all the way back to the very beginning, and we're going to start to answer the question, why did God make this world anyway? I know all of you have thought about that. Everybody has. 
And we're going to talk about three very simple things today. We're going to talk about original plan. We're going to talk about something that if you've ever hung around any church for any length of time, you've heard the words original sin. We're going to take a look at that original sin. And then we're going to take a look at, originally I just said, and um, original Savior. And then I realized there's actually only one Savior. So it's original and only Savior. All right. So let's, let's go back and take a look at the original plan. I want to give you a word picture, and for kind of the rest of the morning, this, this is going to be our word picture or our parable. Because the Bible very clearly says in many, many, many places, and, and you might want to write this in the margin, that the world and everything in it was created for God's glory. Now, I understand that sounds very theological, and you're thinking, well, maybe theologians somewhere understand what creating something for God's glory is, but, but I don't really understand that. Well, this is where the word picture or the parable will help you because we do this sort of thing all the time. And let's take it and let's put it in the context of an artist or a craftsman. And for the sake of what we're doing this morning, we'll put it in the context of an artist. I want you to see God as the ultimate artist because He is. And so it explains why he created the earth. Let's take kind of the first principle of an artist. And that is the joy of an artist is found in creating. It's why artists paint. Have you ever asked why would somebody go to all the work of inventing uh, paints and colors and mix and just go and put them on a canvas? Why do that? Because there's a joy in bringing into being what doesn't currently exist. And the joy of an artist is found in creating. I get joy when I go to my wood shop and I build something and bring into being something that didn't used to be. And it's got beautiful grain in it and the joints are all like they're supposed to be. And it's, and it's functional and it's beautiful. I, and, and when I work with the wood and I smell the wood as I'm cutting it and working with it, and every kind of every kind of wood has its own particular smell. And oftentimes I can walk into a place where people have been working with wood with my eyes closed and smell and know, oh, that's cherry wood or that's oak or that's walnut. They all have different smells. There's this, just this joy of creating. The second thing you need to know about an artist is that the glory of an artist is found in what they create. If you've ever had the opportunity to see anything that Michelangelo has ever done, the glory of Michelangelo is not found in the home where Michelangelo lived. Nor is the glory of Michelangelo found in the chariot he drove on the way to the Sistine Chapel to paint the ceiling. If you want to look at, at what people marvel about that's connected with Michelangelo, then you're going to go to the Sistine Chapel in Italy and you're going to look at the ceiling and you're just going to be blown away at what Michelangelo created there. Or you're going to go see his famous statue of David or his statue of Moses. Or if you really want to be touched, you go see his piata, the statue of Mary holding the lifeless body of her son Jesus. I've never talked to a person yet that saw any of those original works that wasn't just absolutely spellbound. Why? Because the glory of Michelangelo is found in what he created. I want you to think about it. 
The reason that God created the heavens and the earth is because it brought joy to Him as the ultimate artist and the ultimate creator to bring into being and to create what didn't previously exist. A living canvas, if you will. And it is the glory of God to see what He's created. The joy is found in the creating. The glory is found in what is created. And last of all, the value of any artist is found in how his or her work blesses other people. (laughs) There wouldn't be much glory and there wouldn't be much joy if the artist painted the paintings and then locked it away in storage and no one ever saw it. He would never bless anybody. But it's the fact that you can go see what Michelangelo created that makes it a blessing in your life that causes you to value Michelangelo. Because if no one ever saw the Sistine Chapel and no one ever saw his statues of Moses or David or any of the other things that he created, then today no one would ever have heard of Michelangelo because he would have no value because his work would never have blessed anybody. Now, all of those principles apply to God, but in the ultimate degree, he's the ultimate artist. And so the joy he got in creating the heavens and the earth were ultimate. And the glory that he gets. That's why you open your Bible and the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. It is what he has created and the earth shows his handiwork. It is what he created and it is a glory to him for anyone who sees it. And the value of God's art is the fact that it blesses us and it actually blesses the angels and all the other heavenly beings. So with that as a backdrop, I want you to know that the first two chapters of the Bible tell the story of how God brought this living painting into being. And you might not know it, but God went through the same steps to bring His living canvas into being that any artist would to bring a regular painting into being. Let's go back and take a look at that. This is what I call the original plan. Step number one is constructing the artist's canvas. Now I know today you just go down to the store and buy it already done, but for centuries artists had to make their own their own canvas. And by the way, because God started with nothing, he couldn't go down to the local store and buy one, right? He had to start from scratch. So God created an empty canvas. Take a look at what the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the, the deep waters. You know what that is? That is the blank and empty canvas. That's what God started with. So God spoke it into existence, and and the universe came into existence as a blank canvas, and now God said, I'm going to make a living painting on part of that universe. So how did He begin? Like every other artist does, you kind of lay out that sketch. You begin the painting by laying out the sketch, and so God looked at the canvas, and he said, what can I create on that? What can I turn that canvas into? And so the Bible says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. In other words, something was about to change. That canvas that was empty and void and without meaning was about ready to take on life. And it was about ready to take on purpose. So how did God do that? Well, once he got the basic thing laid out, then the next step that he did was this. He began to paint the background. As every artist does. 
You start with where's the horizon going to be if it's a, if it's a scenic painting and what's going to be in the background. Now, even though the background is not the focal point, it has to be painted in such a way that it supports whatever the focal point is going to be and harmonizes with whatever the focal point is going to be. And God said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to make a background for this living painting and that background is going to be outstanding. And instead of using a brush, He spoke it into existence and you know, He did it a piece at a time. I've kind of cut out all the incidental phrases here in Genesis chapter 1 and I just put in the God said, let there be phrases. And so here it is. God said, let there be light in this background and let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth and let the waters beneath the sky flow together in one place so that dry ground may appear. Can you see that God is bringing order to this living canvas and He's starting to create this fabulous backdrop that you and I call earth? Let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees growing seed-bearing fruit. You know, if you've ever watched um, a cartoon or an animation thing where all of a sudden, you know, a paintbrush comes out and it just starts going like this and the next thing you know, it's painting whole pictures and, and whole creatures and so forth. That's kind of how I envision God because you know how they can do that in Hollywood? Because they already know the creature that they're going to create, right? So they rub the paintbrush over it. And next thing you know, there's a rabbit or whatever else it is. And you go, wow, I wish I could paint like that. That's pretty, pretty fast and pretty cool. Well, if you're God, you can, right? So God already knew what rabbits were going to look like. Or he already knew, what, in this case, what orange trees were going to look like. And banana trees and, and peach trees and mango trees and, and, and apple trees and almond trees and all that kind of stuff. And God said, I just want, I want the land to bring forth vegetation. He said, let's, let's see. There's never been any vegetation on earth before. Let's have some. And there it was. And it just started sprouting up all over the place. And God stuck, stood back and thought, wow, that's really cool. And then God said, okay, well then, let's make some great lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. And in fact, if you read the, con- the passage in, in detail, He made the sun for the day and the moon for the night and the stars. And God put those all in place so that, so that the backdrop of earth would just be, would just be eye-catching. And if, and if you've ever watched anything that has to do with the sun or the moon or the stars, or if you've ever gone to Lake Powell on, on, a, on a time when there is no moon and the, and the moon is, is, is on the other side of the earth, it's stunning. I've never been to Lake Powell, but I do remember one time where my family and I got miles away from any, any source of light. And it happened to be a night in which there was no moon and I got my kids out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and we laid across, uh, and I know they'll all remember it, they were just young, but we laid across a picnic table and for 45 minutes looked up into a sky that was white with stars. You just couldn't, just couldn't take it in. It was just amazing. The backdrop. God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. And let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So now we've got fish swimming in the sea and we've got birds flying through the air. And and, and God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock and small animals that scurry along the ground and wild animals. And God looked down and His living painting was literally coming to life at His command. And it was beautiful. Which is why every day God stepped back 
and saw all He had created. And He said, wow, that's pretty cool. That's great. But there was something missing. Just like if you were to walk into an artist's studio and the artist is halfway done with a painting and the background is all as it should be and the hills are all there and, 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 the, and the, the horizon is all there and, and the light is coming and you know where the sun is and you got all that stuff. But you ask the artist, what's the purpose of this painting? It seems like there's something missing kind of right here. Oh yeah, that's because I haven't put in the real reason I painted the painting. All this other stuff is backdrop. It's all supporting the central part of this painting. And God was very clear that the reason He made the heavens and the earth and everything else in it was because the center of this living painting would be mankind. And so now God's going to proceed to paint the focal point of this living canvas. And here it is. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. So God created humankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God said, I've got one last thing that I want to create. And it's the reason I created everything else. And that is, I'm going to put in this living painting, I am going to put people who are made in my image. They will be creators as I am a creator. Not to the level that I am, but they will have my image in them. And they will be creatures who are cognizant of eternity, not just cognizant of today and where's my next meal coming from. They will be creatures that have a soul that's made to resonate with my soul. And so God created mankind. Now once you've built the canvas and once you've sketched out the painting and once you've painted all the backdrop and once you've painted the focal point, there's one thing left to do with your painting. And then just put it on display. After all, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, including us, to display His glory. So how were we going to display the glory of God? Here's how God said it's going to happen. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and, I want you to underline this, govern it. And then the next word says rain. You can underline that too. Rain over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. I want you to understand that that's why God created us, was so that we would govern or manage His creation. Now see, God started Adam and Eve with only a baseline level of knowledge. It's very clear from the Bible that Adam and Eve did not know for instance, how to make music. Because a little while later, the Bible says a guy came along whose name was Jubal, and he was the first guy to invent any sort of musical instrument. God's intent was that as they were made in His image, 
that they would begin to move throughout the earth, reign over it, discover, develop hidden abilities God had given them, and, and it was just a wonderful picture that God had. It would be good for us to take a moment or two and think about what it might mean to be made in the image of God. Take a look at the following video. You know, it is a wonderful privilege and an awesome responsibility to have been placed in charge of God's creation. But even in that video, he spoke about the fact that man sinned and tainted that. I call this the canvas is torn. This is the second section we're going to talk about original sin. Here's this beautiful living canvas, and it's gorgeous, and it's perfect in every way. And then man invites sin, and the canvas is ripped. Now, by the way, when a canvas is ripped and torn, does it tend to devalue it a little bit? Lots. Yeah. So let's take a look at that. Now, probably most of you are somewhat familiar with... The first sin, that Adam and Eve lived in a paradise that God had created for them. And by the way, if you go back and look in Genesis chapter chapter 2, you will see that God created on the earth a garden for Adam and Eve, and He placed them in the garden. It was beautiful, and it was just gorgeous, and it wasn't His intent that they would stay in the garden because He said, I want you to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, govern it, reign over it, learn how it works, investigate it. Create things which obviously God gave all of us the ability to either make or enjoy music. Hopefully we know which side of that we're on, right? Yeah. Yeah. And other things. Wow. So there was the job. And to manage it for God's glory. So that His glory would be displayed. But if you go back and look at Satan's conversation the snake's conversation with Eve, you realize that Adam and Eve did not eat that fruit primarily because it looked better than the oranges on the tree next door or better than the apples or the pears or the mangoes or the bananas. Why did they eat of that tree? Because Satan wanted them to see and he deceived them into believing that it was not fair for them to manage the earth in such a way that it displayed God's glory, that they should manage the earth in such a way that it displayed their own glory. And if they could somehow cut in on God's glory, that life would be better for them. How do I know that? Well, let's just take a look at the conversation between the snake and Eve. He said, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will what? Be like God. Oh yeah, you want to cut in on God's deal. You don't want to let God get all this glory. It belongs to you. And then he goes on to say, knowing both good and evil, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she what? Wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she ate some of it and gave some of the fruit to Adam and he ate it as well. Wow. 
the canvas is torn. Now God has a very, very tough thing to do. Those of you who have been parents, do you like delivering bad news to your kids? No. It's one thing to say to your kids, hey, you want to go to Cold Stone? You love to deliver that message. But when you have to deliver a message, I'm not even saying punish. It's just a bad message. I got bad news. It's just not fun. Now, theologians are kind of split right down the middle. Because what I'm going to take you through next is what all theologians call, quote, the curse. Even though, well, here's what theologians are kind of torn about. Some people think that the curse is something God did in anger to punish the the earth and to punish man for what he had done, and therefore God placed it under a curse because he wanted to. And other theologians believe that it wasn't so much that God placed it under a curse, but because of the nature of how things work when man invited sin into the world, that it was just the natural consequence. You know, it's like jumping off a 20-foot building. It's not necessarily that anybody curses you, but you will get hurt. You understand? But you know, in either way, in either case, it kind of doesn't make any difference because the curse is the curse. And boy, I call this living with a torn canvas. And by the way, that's the only world you and I have ever known. We never got to see God's world in its sinless perfection where everything was just wonderful. We have only known a world that's been decaying for thousands of years. I want to walk you through what that curse means. And here's what God said. God said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And all the mothers in the room said, Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Okay? And then, and you will desire to control your husband. And all the guys said, You don't say that very loud, do you? Yeah, right. (laughs) And he will rule over you. And all the women said, yeah, okay, all right. We'll come back to that in a little bit, all right. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. Now I want to stop right there for just a minute because I want you to see a very, very important principle. You and I are earthly beings. We were created to live on this earth. The earth was designed as a place for us to live and to be happy. And there's something in all of us that resonates with the earth. By the way, you can travel way outside Christianity and still see this principle in operation. How many of you have seen a little bumper sticker that's on the car of somebody and and, and it's got a picture of, of the earth or a globe and it says, love your... Mother Earth, right? Now, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not into New Age stuff, and the Bible certainly isn't into New Age stuff, but I want you to understand that there's a connection that you and I have to this earth that's a God-given connection. And, and it's kind of like God says, as man goes, so goes the earth. Because did the earth sin or did Adam and Eve sin? Adam and Eve sinned, and yet God cursed the earth. And a little while later, He's going to say, I made you from dust, where to get the dust was from the earth, and to dust you will return. We, that's a very important, what shall I say, indicator of where God's going to take us eventually. But 
Take a look at it here. And he said, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch out a living from it. And everybody that works every week said, what? Yeah, that's exactly right. We struggle to scratch out a living. And then he goes on to say, it will grow thorns and thistles. Don't you hate Adam every time you're working your garden and your flower beds? You will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. You know, theologians have studied that, and there are kind of four words, and they all begin with the letter D, that kind of break down this, this curse that we live under and we're born under. And the first is the word death. Basically what God said is all living things will die. So guess what? Last time I checked, the death rate was pretty close to 100%. Part of the curse. What's the oldest living thing on the face of planet Earth? Some people think it's it's the grizzly giant that lives, that is a tree uh, in Yosemite. It certainly is one of the oldest living things on the face of planet Earth, but even the best estimations, uh, even our most current estimations, certainly don't take it back it's maybe 1,500 to 2,000 years old, although now they believe it's more like eight or 900 years old. Hmm. You know why? Because no matter how big trees grow, eventually they die too. Whales die, elephants die, even things that live a long time, turtles, they all die eventually because God says everything's going to die. Okay? Second part of the curse, not only death, but decay. You know, you know what you have to do for something to just rot and fall apart? Nothing. <laughs> I don't care what it is. Because if you don't consciously maintain it, it'll rot and fall apart right where it sits. Because everything in our world is headed toward decay and chaos. It's part of the curse. Third, disease. How many of you are really anxious for allergy season to get here? See, It's already here. I know. Some of you are already pumping the meds just to, so you can breathe. And your eyes don't water all the time. It disease is just, it's a part of life. I mean, how many of you got the flu this winter? Yeah. Or had somebody in your house have the flu? Yeah. Okay. Disease. It's part of the world in which we live. Okay. And then the last thing is disharmony. And really, death and decay and disease are all forms of disharmony. There are things that are not working as they're supposed to be working or as God originally intended for them to work. Now, how many of you have ever, ever thought or said the concept, everything and everybody's against me? Anybody here ever, you ever have a day like, everything's against me? Well, I want you to get, I want you to get a little insight into why you feel that way sometimes. Because you know the truth? Everything is against you. And you thought that was good news, right? Yeah, okay, here. Take a look. This is what God said as He broke down the curse that you and I live under. First of all, there's going to be disharmony between God and man. What was the first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned? Well, Adam got one fig leaf and Eve got three. And God said, that's not enough. Okay? Why were they getting fig leaves? Because they were naked and they knew they were naked and they hid from God because they were afraid. You see, already they felt out of harmony with God. They felt like they could not trust God. And they felt like God wouldn't trust them. Second thing, not only between God and, between God and man, but between man and life. 
God says, and he started with Eve, you need to learn something that because of this sin, you have invited pain into your world. Even bringing a new human being into this world is going to be accompanied by incredible pain because from this point on, life will be painful. It starts out painful. And you know, for most of us, it ends painfully. Yeah. Third, not just between man and life, but man and the earth. He said, you know, Adam, how everything used to just kind of grow so naturally and everything that grew was great? Well, guess what? Let me introduce you to your new friend, weeds. And the work that you used to do that was all fun, (laughs) now it's got a whole new dimension called toil. We all know what that is. Yeah. Because toil is the measure of disharmony between us and our work. And you may love your job, but there's an amount of toil in it, and the amount of toil that you have is probably because of the things about that job that you don't like to do. That's that disharmony thing. Not only between these three, but there's also a disharmony between man and the animals. Prior to Adam and Eve's sin, the animals had no fear of each other and no fear of Adam and Eve. But if if I read this in its detail, God would say, Adam and Eve, I'm going to cause the fear and dread of you to fall on the animals. Now, some of you are animal lovers and you have a, a, a veritable zoo at your house. In the best sense of the word, okay? And But you know something? Every animal that you bring into your home, you have to take it through a domestication process so that it can overcome its natural fear of you. And by the way, when that animal falls in love with you, when a stranger walks up, is that animal immediately in love with a stranger? No, it has to learn to overcome its fear because there's a natural fear in animals of man out of harmony. And last of all, one that needs relatively little comment, there will be disharmony between men and women. And what will this disharmony, what lines will it fall along? Always the lines of control. It's just there. We live in a world that's out of harmony with how it was made to operate. So in a sense... We are creatures swimming upstream because the disharmony of our world is going one way and we're trying to learn how to live in harmony with how God made the world. So that was what God delivered. Now, I have good news for you because God loves us. It's a good thing He does. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, there were only two people on the face of planet Earth. And the more I've studied this, the more I have become amazed that God didn't just blow it all up and start all over again. Because after all, there were only two people on the face of planet Earth. And how long did it take Him to make planet Earth? Six days, right? I'm amazed God didn't say, well, that was a wasted week of work. Blow it up and start all over again. Because He could have cut His losses and they would have been pretty minimal at that point. But instead, I want you to write this word down. Redeem. 
God made a decision in heaven that we're going to focus on for the next two weeks. And God said, I will not abandon my creation. I will not abandon my original plan. I will not abandon the work of my hand. I will not throw it in the incinerator and burn it up and start all over again. But whatever it takes, I will set about redeeming it. And I will set about making it come back to the place that I originally created it to be. And, and, and I'll even do better than that. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks. And you know something? Even as God was delivering this bad news to Adam and Eve about how their world was now filled with pain and toil and disharmony, even in that context, He wanted to give them a promise as well. And so here's the promise. As God was talking to Satan, He said, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then here's the very first promise of a coming Redeemer. He will strike your head and you will strike His heel. For those of you who saw the passion of the Christ. You will remember that in many scenes, Satan was sneaking around behind and you could hear little hissing kind of noises in the background and in and, and a not very good voice, as, as, especially when Judas got up to go out and betray Jesus. You just oh, made the hair stand up on the back of my neck as I was watching Judas be controlled by Satan and choosing to be controlled by Satan. And there was this battle of the snake and the Son of God. But you also remember at the end of the movie that Jesus takes His sandal. Remember what He does to the snake? Crushes. The single most important event in the history of humankind was Jesus' victory over Satan. And God promised it right here. Father, we are so blessed that You didn't give up on the work of Your hands as You created this living canvas that You wanted us to be a part of. And we're so blessed that You've asked us to manage it for Your glory, and yet we confess that so often we lose sight of that. And we somehow think that earth is all about us and life is all about us. And God, we act sometimes like You're lucky to have us. Lord, would You help us to see that we are blessed to have been created in Your image. The focal point of Your creation and that You have given us an eternity to live that out. Would You help us to begin that right here, right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.